Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would remind us of your words, that we as your servants would be able to trust in you and see your word as a word of hope for us, that your word would bring us comfort in our affliction that we would see the promises within Your Word that give us life. Lord, although others might despise Your Word, Lord, help us to be able to love and cherish that we might not be able to turn away from Your law. Lord, when we remember Your Word, as we meditate on Your Word, we pray that we would find comfort in Your Word as it points to You, the One who comforts us. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here. And watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch? One hour, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Resumes are quite an interesting thing. And quite an interesting thing when you think that the person writing the resume is the person who is applying for the job, who is speaking of themselves. Obviously, you have different sections in the resume, but one also very interesting thing is maybe where they might ask the question, what are your strengths and your weaknesses on your resume? And and ultimately, you're trying to present the best foot forward when you're applying for a resume. That in this time, um, people aren't the most honest in these situations. They might try and look at a positive way to be able to put their weaknesses down, Someone might put on their resume that they're very independent. And what this might actually mean, if they were honest with themselves, that they don't like working with other people. They don't like groups. You know, you might have, I'm willing to work late. What this might mean, honestly, is I'm willing to work late, but I don't want to work early. If you were honest with yourselves, or they might be able to say that I'm I'm great with people. 
And when they're saying they're great with people, this is a true and honest fact, but they might be missing out that they're terrible with numbers. They might miss out all these other things. They're, they're, we're more often to be able to put forward our strengths rather than our weaknesses. You know, maybe the reason for them getting the job, they might explain and elaborate that they really want to work with such a great and vital company. But honestly, if they were to be honest about themselves, well, this job pays better than my current job. And thus, I'm willing to apply for it. But not even just on professional resumes we put our best foot forward. But in all aspects of life, we really and often pretend to be stronger than we are. Have you ever turned down help, although it would have been helpful to you? Have you ever thought about how you present yourself to others? How you look? How you act? And and worried about the response, whether people would like you or not? Have you ever continued to do work or to do something, but knew if you continued down this path, you would be hurting yourself? Younger people, have you ever removed something from social media? A post or a picture because you didn't think it would help what people would view of you? It might put forward this weakness towards other people. One that might be laughed and mocked at. Girls and boys, have you ever thought to yourself, I don't need help. I'm strong. I'm independent. Not even boys and girls. All of us have probably thought this at some point. We're quick to be able to Put forward our strengths. We're not quick to be able to publish our weaknesses. In today's passage, we see the disciples' shortcoming in their weaknesses in the flesh. However, we see Christ's sorrow, the realities of this anxiety that's upon His human soldiers. But in this glorious passage, we're reminded of our weaknesses. But Christ is the one who remains strong. You see this in the first point, that Christ's strength, Jesus' strength in prayer. As we have seen, as we have studied, especially chapter 14 and even before this, Jesus knows what is coming around the corner. He's told His disciples clearly three times that Christ must suffer many things. He knows what is going to happen in the next few days. He is not this floating leaf wandering down a river weighed by the currents and the wind. He has instituted the new meal of the covenant in the Lord's Supper. He foretold of His disciples and their abandonment, their betrayal and denials. Now what He does is He turns to God. And He turns to God in prayer. He left Jerusalem, gone to the Mount of Olives. Now He goes to this garden close to the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is probably on the top. Garden of Gethsemane is probably down the valley. And Gethsemane literally just means oil press. There is this olive grove surrounded by olive trees, and then there is this oil press located in the garden. And Jesus goes to pray. And as He goes to pray, He invites three of His disciples, Peter, James, and John, to be able to come and join Him. Now these three have gone with Him before. Not down to the valley, but the top of the mount, of Mount Transfiguration. They've seen all the glory of Christ on display. But here as they come, they see 
is humiliation. We see two important things here as his response to prayer. Now we spent some time when we started looking at Mark chapter 1, verse 35 to 39, looking at Christ and his prayer life. That it was a period of prayer, a place of prayer, the privacy of prayer, the purpose of prayer. I'm not going to go over all those things again, but I want to highlight one thing. Last week, Peter made this bold proclamation of his steadfast commitment to Christ until the end, even to death. But Jesus doesn't make this bold proclamation. He comes humbly in prayer before his Father. There is no arrogance on Christ's part. He comes to his Father in prayer. As Biam Palmer puts it so well, prayer is creaturely dependent. And this is what Christ does as He comes to God the Father in prayer. Christ in this hour puts His trust not in men, not even in Himself, but in God. It's a great reminder for us, for us to be able to turn to God in our hour of need. But secondly, we also see this weight which is upon Christ's shoulders. The reason why Jesus turns to God in prayer is that Jesus is greatly distressed and troubled. He then goes on to tell His disciples that His soul is very troubled, even uh, is very sorrowful, even to death. Jesus used three words to describe how He is feeling at this time. The first is greatly distressed. Now this is used four times in the Gospel of Mark, and this is the only time it appears in the New Testament. And often it is used as this great amazement or this alarm. Now amazement often has this positive side to it. But there are some things that can amaze us that are actually quite negative, that are a weight upon us. Your heart begins to pump more boldly. And so too, this, this amazement is, is what Christ is upon us. What is going to follow in the coming days. The second word he used is he is troubled. That of anxiety, and concern for something or someone. Used of Epaphroditus in a, uh, Philippians. After hearing that the church is concerned of his near health issues. In Philippians chapter 2. But the last word is used is very sorrowful. That Jesus is grieved throughout His whole being. That He uses the word found in Psalm 42, verses 6, and then again in verse 11. My soul is cast down within me. Here's these words that describe His, his emotional state at this time. That if one of these words by themselves would paint a picture for us, but three of these words together paint an even more beautiful picture of the depths of what Christ is going through. Distressed, troubled, very sorrowful. And it's not because He's unsure of what's coming in the future. He knows that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He knows what is going to happen. His disciples are going to abandon Him. One of his disciples is going to betray him. Peter is going to deny him. He knows what is going to happen. And thus the weight upon him is all the more. 
But where does he turn? He turns to God, the dependable one. He turns to God in prayer. The second thing that we see of Jesus' strength is Jesus' strength to do God's will. Jesus walks further into the garden. He falls to the ground. Again, this weight upon His shoulders. He knows. He knows what is going to come. He knows what is going to be written about Him in the coming chapters. We'll speak of this later, but He prays a simple and glorious prayer amidst the garden. Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Remove this cup from Me. Not what I will, but what you will. He cries out to his heavenly Father, understanding his power and position. He cries out that this cup might be removed from him. Now this cup is not merely going just to the cross to die. That in itself would cause this distress and trouble and make our souls sorrowful. But Christ speaks of the cup of the wrath to be poured out upon Him. The judgment of God, His heavenly Father, would be placed upon Jesus Christ, the Passover Lamb. When Jesus said, this is My body, this is My blood, it wasn't metaphorical in the sense that He was just talking about a Passover Lamb Later, he was talking about his own body, his own blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of sin. He knows this is coming. coming. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is hypostatically united to Jesus of Nazareth, this human body. The human body of Jesus would be tormented, whipped, ridiculed, hung on a criminal device to be able to cause this asphyxiation. But this cup of wrath is more than just a death on a criminal device. That all the sins of God's people would be placed upon Jesus Christ. The One who is without sin. That He would be crushed. That He would be buried into the ground. He would be that sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God. That's what He means by this cup. Not merely just death on a cross. But God's wrath poured out in full. You think about wrath and how it is expressed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, God's wrath is shown by global floods. The raining of sulfur and brimstone, the annihilation of nations, pestilence, plague, sickness, and famine. All of these are signs of God's wrath. And these are for sins within a specific time in history. But yet for Christ, it is all the sins of all of His people poured out on full. That Christ would drink the whole cup Not just a portion. A whole cup of God's wrath which is due to all of His people. And it's hard. Sometimes we just say things because we've read them or we've heard them. But how powerful this statement that Christ who knew no sin 
became sin for us. This is this cup of this wrath which God is going to pour out upon His Son. He had not known sin. Yet our sin is imputed to Him. The punishment of our sin is taken by Him. And he, he became sin for us. The eternally begotten Son of God took on flesh, and now that flesh would suffer a horrible death, bearing all the sins of His people. So much that this weight upon Him causes Him to sweat drops of blood, which Luke the physician explains the medical condition which is caused from individuals who suffer extreme levels of stress. The soul is very sorrowful. Yet Christ here prays that this cup would be taken away from Him. However, Christ utters these famous words, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now is Christ opposed to God? And the two persons of the Trinity desire two different things. Now, it's a debate. You can look through church history, read about all the articles. You can Google it. Ultimately, this debate, does Christ have one will or two wills? This is ultimately the question of the debate. I don't wish to go over it too much here. But church history is explained, and I agree that it's, a will is a part of a nature. You cannot have a nature without a will. And Christ bears two natures. The, the God nature and then the human nature. Both hypostatically united without composition, confusion, or conversion. And each of those natures bears a will. So when Christ prays in the garden... Let not my will be done, but yours. He's praying that his human will is saying he does not want to go forward with this. Understandable. Again, we flippantly talk about Christ's death, and we can come immune to this grotesque word, death. It's not merely that he died, old age. His human will did not want to face what was in store for him. Though he uttered the words, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And Christ knew what those many things were. And it was indeed suffering. The next few days would include horrific acts of death on the cross. This was an execution device made by the Romans the worst of the criminals. If you were a Roman citizen, you could not be hung on a cross. They said it was too much, too much humiliation. It was not merely just to be able to provide someone a means of death through the death penalty, but it was a way to be able to humiliate them while being able to cause the most amount of, enormous amount of pain. This criminal would have to carry this cross beam. It's probably about 100 pounds to their place of execution. Like having someone plug in the outlet, the electric chair, just before it's about to be used. It would have been whipped and beaten beforehand, often close to the point of death. It would have had 
nails driven in their wrists and their feet, and their feet are slightly bent, placed upon a wooden block. And ultimately, they would be able to push up on this wooden block to be able to hold their lungs up to be able to breathe. But over time, their strength would weaken. Their knees would no longer be able to remain upright. They would die slowly as they were no longer able to breathe. weren't able to bear their weight. They would die from exhaustion, asphyxiation. And often, towards the end of the process, if people were taking too long to die, they would come up and break their knees. They would no longer be able to hold themselves up. When Paul preaches in Acts chapter 13 to the people of Antioch, he explains that Christ is executed. And here, we see in this passage why Christ would be praying, let not, let this cup be passed from me. It's a horrific act that He is going to do, but says, not my will be done, but your will be done. Isaiah 53 says, it's the Lord's will to be able to crush him. He followed. In the garden with Adam, the first Adam, he was presented with a way. His will or God's will. And he followed his own desires. The tree was good to be able to look at. And he followed his own sinful heart. What he wanted to do. But yet Christ, the second Adam, in another garden, prays, your will be done. Not my will. In all of this, we see Christ in His strength, in His prayer, and His ability to be able to follow God's will. We also see the disciples' weaknesses. Verses 37 and following. Now moments early, hours earlier, minutes earlier, all of the disciples have uttered that they would never deny Christ. They joined in with Peter as Peter said that I will live my life following you. I will go even to the point of death. I would never deny you. I would never deny you. And yet what do they do at this time? sleeping. The Master is bearing a burden upon Himself and they're sleeping. He's acknowledged that the Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Now the human body has its limitation. Yet we must see a difference here between Christ who is also a man who has the same physical limitation but He is without sin. Now, it might seem harsh, but I think in this passage you see the disciples in their sin. They've been given a commandment by Christ to be able to watch and pray. But they're found asleep. Every time Christ goes to be able to pray, and each time they fall asleep. Now, we do not know, and we can only uh, be cause of speculation, be able to find reasons for their uh, falling asleep. 
I do see that this is a very important lesson for us. That often our body tells us what we need physically. Our stomachs rumble, our muscles ache, our mouth turns dry, our eyes get heavy. We know when we are hungry, sore, thirsty, or tired. And you can see the effect on our body because we have done too much or not done enough. However, how subtle it is when we think about our spiritual needs. Yet how more important is the latter than the former. How quickly we can pass over everything we need spiritually. We cannot pray. We don't have any rumblings. And some of us, if we're honest, we can go a long period of time even without thinking of reading God's Word. Point this out not to force guilt upon you, but I think to point out a reality. That the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But if we were to stop here in this passage and just understand here that we would miss the point of this passage. The application would be that we need to stay awake, that we need to pray more. We need to read our Bible more, whatever that might be. These are good applications. Now you can change some things in your life to be able to help you. Some of us have black holes of things that consume our time of, that are fruitless and futile. Time wasting. We need to be aware of these. But I think if we come to this application point, we miss the whole point of chapter 14, of this passage, of the whole Gospel. The truth is that we cannot do it. What we focus on is disciples and what they were not doing. And all we get is the law and not the Gospel. The Gospel in this passage is while the disciples are sleeping, Christ is praying. While the disciples are weak, Christ is strong. Now, I don't think this is a good life application point to be able to excuse us for all of our sin, but every time that we've slept in we haven't prayed, Christ has prayed for us. The Gospel is not do better. The Gospel is Christ has done all things for us. That His righteousness is ours. That our flesh is weak. But more than that, that Christ does not wait for us to be strong. He died for us while we were still weak. Paul explains in Romans chapter 5, for while we were yet still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He does not wait for us to be godly before He dies for us. He died while we were yet weak and while we were still ungodly. Continues. Verse 8, but God showed His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. The wrath of God which is poured out upon Christ. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, 
we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Christ does not need strong disciples. The reason why we are His disciples is we are weak. And He is strong. Mark 14 is filled with betrayal, denial, abandonment of all of His disciples. Christ is the one who remains strong through all of this adversity. Christ's Spirit and His flesh are strong when we are still weak. This is not just the point of Mark 14, but the whole gospel message from Genesis to Revelation. The little children's song goes, they are weak, but he is strong. That message does not change. We are weak, but he is strong. Tim Keller has has a great quote explaining how Christianity is different from all other religions. Quite a long quote, so bear with me. Every other religion and philosophy says you have to do something to connect to God. But Christianity says no. Jesus Christ came to do for you what you could not do for yourself. Every other religion says there are answers to the big questions, but Christianity says Jesus is the answer to all of them. So many systems of thought appeal to strong, successful people because they play directly into their belief that if you are strong and hard-working enough, you will prevail. Christianity is not just for the strong. It is for everyone. Especially for people who admit it. Where it really counts, they're weak. It's the people who have their particular kind of strength to admit that their flaws are not superficial. Their heart is deeply disordered. They are incapable of rectifying themselves. It's for those who can see that they need a Savior. That they need Jesus Christ dying on the cross to put them right with God. Our Christian resume is quite simple. I can do nothing without Christ. I have no righteousness to my own. What is deserving of me is death and punishment. I'm unqualified. But Christ is qualified for me. Through all my weaknesses, it is Christ's strength. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. O gracious Heavenly Father, we give You thanks and praise. Lord, that we are indeed weak. That we are indeed unworthy. That as we reflect on this glorious passage, while the disciples are sleeping, Christ is praying. Lord, we pray we would understand this glorious good news of this Gospel. Let us come to You in all of our weakness. Let us rely in You, on You for all of Your strength. Let us boast in our weakness. For You, Christ, are strong. Help us to be able to see this. Forgive us when we have tried to accomplish things by our own strength and think that we are able to save ourselves. We know we are not. Pray this in Christ's name.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.